Thanks for downloading or purchasing this sermon from Christchurch Forward. To find out more, visit forwardchurch.co.uk or join us on Sundays. We're reading the whole of Exodus chapter 4. Moses answered, What if they do not believe me or listen to me and say, The Lord did not appear to you? Then the Lord said to him, What is that in your hand? A staff, he replied. The Lord said, Throw it on the ground. Moses threw it on the ground and it became a snake and he ran from it. Then the Lord said to him, Reach out your hand and take it by the tail. So Moses reached out and took hold of the snake and it turned back into a staff in his hand. This, said the Lord, is so that they may believe that the Lord, the God of their fathers, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac and the God of Jacob, has appeared to you. Then the Lord said, Put your hand inside your cloak. So Moses put his hand into his cloak and when he took it out, it was leprous like snow. Now put it back into your cloak, he said. So Moses put his hand back into his cloak, and when he took it out, it was restored like the rest of his flesh. Then the Lord said, If they do not believe you or pay attention to the first miraculous sign, they may believe the second. But if they do not believe these two signs or listen to you, take some water from the Nile and pour it on the dry ground. The water you take from the river will become blood on the ground. Moses said to the Lord, O Lord, I have never been eloquent, neither in the past nor since you have spoken to your servant. I am slow of speech and tongue. The Lord said to him, Who gave man his mouth? Who makes him deaf or mute? Who gives him sight or makes him blind? Is it not I, the Lord? Now go. I will help you speak and will teach you what to say. But Moses said, O Lord, please send someone else to do it. Then the Lord's anger burned against Moses and he said, What about your brother Aaron the Levite? I know he can speak well. He is already on his way to meet you and his heart will be glad when he sees you. You shall speak to him and put words in his mouth. I will help both of you speak and will teach you what to do. He will speak to the people for you, and it will be as if he were your mouth, and as if you were God to him. But take this staff in your hand, so that you can perform miraculous signs with it. Then Moses went back to Jethro, his father-in-law, and said to him, Let me go back to my own people in Egypt, to see if any of them are still alive. Jethro said, Go, and I wish you well. Now the Lord had said to Moses in Midian, Go back to Egypt, for all the men who wanted to kill you are dead. So Moses took his wife and sons, put them on a donkey, and started back to Egypt. And he took the staff of God in his hand. The Lord said to Moses, When you return to Egypt, see that you perform before Pharaoh all the wonders I have given you the power to do. But I will harden his heart so that he will not let the people go. Then say to Pharaoh, this is what the Lord says, Israel is my firstborn son and I told you, let my son go so that he may worship me, but you refuse to let him go, so I will kill your firstborn son. At a lodging place on the way, the Lord met Moses and was about to kill him, but Zipporah took a flint knife, 
cut off her son's foreskin and touch Moses' feet with it. Surely you are a bridegroom of blood to me, she said. So the Lord let him alone. At that time, she said, bridegroom of blood, referring to circumcision. The Lord said to Aaron, go into the desert to meet Moses. So he met Moses at the mountain of God and kissed him. Then Moses told Aaron everything the Lord had sent him to say, and also about all the miraculous signs he had commanded him to perform. Moses and Aaron brought together all the elders of the Israelites, and Aaron told them everything the Lord had said to Moses. He also performed the signs before the people, and they believed. And when they heard that the Lord was concerned about them and had seen their misery, they bowed down and worshipped. Heather, thank you very much. Do keep your Bibles open at that reading, Exodus 4, page 60 in the Church Bibles. Let's pray as we turn to God's word. Moses answered, what if they do not believe? Father, we thank you for your word written to help us to believe. Please, would you help us this morning where we are struggling to believe in your plans and your promises. Please, would you bring us belief and confidence in all that you've said to us. In Jesus' name, amen. I'm sure we've all heard things that we find hard to believe. Uh, perhaps you're speaking to a little child and they're telling you a story and you suspect that they've sort of um, changed the events a bit to make the story sound more impressive. Or uh, perhaps there's a certain news item that you've heard which you find hard to believe. I came across a BBC uh, news item recently about a couple who had a, a pet who happened to be a donkey. And this couple um, took the donkey into their house and even into their sitting room and used to sit watching the telly with the donkey there next to them uh, in their front sitting room. I found that hard to believe. Um, or perhaps we've heard uh, quite a lot recently about how good the England rugby team is. Uh, and yet we find that hard to believe because of the results over the last few weeks. I'm sorry, as a Scotland fan, I just had to kind of mention that at some point early on uh, this morning. That's out of the way now. We can move on. Um, or, or, or kind of more seriously, uh, as we watch the news, uh, we've heard various politicians claiming to be able to uh, stop the war in Syria or to deal with the refugee crisis across Europe or to find a way to balance the books for the NHS. And as we hear these claims, we find ourselves thinking, that's hard to believe. We hear lots of things that we struggle to believe. It happens all the time. And often it doesn't really matter. When we hear something, we can laugh at it, or we can ignore it, or we can become cynical at the person who says it. But normally it doesn't really matter. But it does matter a very great deal when it comes to God and the promises he has made to us. So when God says to us, I will wipe away every tear, and we are living through agony at the moment, it can be hard to believe what God says. When God says, I will build my church, and we look around this country, and it looks as if the church is shrinking day by day, it's hard to believe. When God says, I have a plan to bless and prosper, and yet our lives are such hard work, and it's so difficult, 
it's hard to believe God. If we struggle to believe what God says, we are not the first. As we turn back to Exodus 4, the problem of unbelief is front and center. If you have been with us over the last few weeks, back in Exodus 3, you'll know that God has appeared to Moses. He has made some tremendous promises to Moses about how he's going to rescue his people and how he's going to bring them into a a brilliant land of great abundance flowing with milk and honey. Uh, Wonderful promises. But look at how chapter 4, verse 1 begins. Moses answered, What if they, that is the people of Israel, what if they do not believe me or listen to me saying, the Lord did not appear to you. You can imagine that Moses just uh, thinking back to the last time he tried to lead the people of Israel. And it was an utter failure. Uh, you can imagine Moses trying to picture in his mind's eye the kind of conversation he's going to have to have if he actually does this. You can imagine going back to Israel, perhaps uh, speaking to an Israelite father who had been born into slavery. All he had known his whole life was slavery to Egypt, back-breaking toil day in, day out, scraping together a living for his family. He would come home every night to his lovely wife and, and two daughters, and yet he weeps every evening because he had two sons as well before they were murdered by the Egyptians. You can imagine Moses standing there now, an old man aged 80, well past the prime of life, having just sort of wandered out of the desert, having been absent for 40 years, saying to this Israelite father, no, 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 really, God does care. He really does remember. I get it when Moses says, verse one, what if they don't believe me? I can understand that. And my guess is that in a room this size, there'll be people who, because of what's happening in life, are thinking the same thing. How can I believe God and his promises to us? But look, if you will, towards the end of the chapter, right at the end, actually, verse 31 of the chapter we're looking at. Remarkably, we read, and they, that is the people of Israel, and they believed. And because they believed God's promises, we read at the end of the verse, they bowed down and worshipped God. We all hear things that we find hard to believe. And yet, here in chapter 4, we see how it is possible for God's people to move from a position of unbelief to belief, even in the midst of toil and difficulty and suffering. And I think we get a great help this morning to think through how we can and should be the people of God who believe and trust in his promises, even when it's hard. So as we dive into the the passage, two points for us to think through this morning. First of all, looking at the first nine verses, God gives his people reasons to believe. He gives his people reasons to believe. And look at how God responds to that problem of unbelief. So verse two, the Lord said to Moses, what is that in your hand? A staff, he replied. The Lord said, throw it on the ground. Moses threw it on the ground, and it became a snake. And Moses did what I would have done in that moment. He runs away. Um, I hate snakes. It's the kind of obvious thing to do. Uh, Many years ago, um, I went out to to visit my grandmother. She was living in the uh, Midwest of the the U.S., 
And um, I was asked by one of the carers if I could, could help out while I was there. And I was asked to, to, to mow the lawn, which was uh, fair enough. But as I was heading out the front door, the carer called out, oh, uh, just be careful. Um, there are a load of poisonous black snakes in, in the bushes around the lawn. And uh, last week, one was out on the lawn. We had to kill it. Just, just be aware of it. If you see one, just kind of go for it with the mower and you'll be fine. Uh, I can say that in the course of human history, I doubt anyone has mowed a lawn faster than I (laughs) mowed that afternoon. I hate snakes. So is that what God is doing here in Exodus 4? Is this his big plan to kind of scare people with snakes and therefore bring about a rescue? Well, no, it's it's much more than that. What's happening here in this sign is not just a, a display of naked power, like a trick that God can pull out pull off now you see in, in Egyptian culture the, the snake was significant the, the, the pharaoh wore a headdress shaped like a serpent the snake was the kind of a, the royal crest for the, the kind of royal household uh, snakes were, were crucial to Egyptian culture a sign of authority and power and so when God grants Moses the ability to create and decreate a snake like that he is showing the people of Israel that he can create and decreate the very power that oppresses them, the power of Egypt. The goal of the sign is clear in verse five. This, said the Lord, is so that they may believe that the Lord, the God of their fathers, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob has appeared to you. You see, God gives his people reasons to believe. And it's worth saying, nothing actually happens in Exodus 4. The circumstances don't change. God's people remain in slavery. And yet what they do now have are these signs that point forward to a rescue that will take place. And so God wants his people to believe the signs. Well, if that doesn't work, then there's always the kind of leprous hand option. Verse 6, Moses puts his hand into his cloak and it comes out leprous. Now, thankfully, thankfully, verse 7, there's the uh, reverse option available to Moses if he wants it. But again, why, why this sign? Is it just a party trick, hand in, hand out? Well, again, no, because in ancient culture, and certainly in the Egyptian culture, your health was the domain of the gods. If you had poor health, you prayed for good health to the gods. If you had good health, well, then you thanked the gods for giving you good health. And here, God gives Moses the ability to create and decreate good health, showing Israel and Moses and Egypt that God was with Moses. And again, the goal of all this is clear. Verse 8, then the Lord said, if they do not believe you or pay attention to the first miraculous sign, they may believe the second. You see, the goal is belief. But if that doesn't work, verse 9, But if they do not believe these two signs or listen to you, take some water from the Nile and pour it on the dry grounds. The water you take from the river will become blood on the ground. I think it's hard for us living in this country to kind of picture how water works. We were walking in the hills this week and I think it's safe to say throughout the course of the whole walk we could hear or see water the whole time. There are lots of streams and brooks that we cross. There are bogs everywhere. And behind us, there's a massive lake uh, the whole time. There's lots of water around in this country. 
But not so in Egypt, a hot, dry, desert land. Uh, The Nile was the source of life. The Egyptians built around the Nile because they needed the water to live. And in fact, they worshipped the Nile as a god. And so when God gives Moses the ability to take that source of life and in an instant to make it into a source of disease and death, he is showing Moses, the Israelites, and Egypt that God can take away Egypt as easy as it is for him to turn water into blood. God gives his people reasons to believe. Now, this is so important for us uh, to spot. Do you see the pattern that's taking place? God has made some tremendous promises, Exodus 3. Nothing's happened yet, Exodus 4, but he gives his people signs that point forward to what will happen in the future. There's the pattern. And it may be so hard to believe in the present because of our circumstances. Slavery, the toil, are screaming a different narrative. And yet God gives his people these signs that they may believe about what will happen in the future. And this is how God works throughout the course of history. Much later on in the history of Israel, there was another moment when there was a 400 year silence when God appeared absent. His people were enslaved by an occupying force. And then another baby was born. That baby grew up to be a man who was a great rescuer of God's people. This man made tremendous claims about how he could give eternal life and restore and um, bring about forgiveness. And what did he do to help God's people believe these extraordinary claims? Well, we saw it, didn't we, in John's gospel over the summer, how Jesus came doing signs so that people might believe. We saw it, didn't we, how Jesus turned water into wine. He healed a, a sick boy He raised an invalid to full health. He fed 5,000 people. He calmed the storm, opened blind eyes, and even brought a dead man back to life. Not just a show of raw power, but rather so that God's people living in the present can believe what will happen to them in the future through God's rescuer, Jesus. God gives his people reasons to believe And for us sitting here thousands of years later, what about us? As we grapple to believe in a world that's full of toil and suffering, it's hard to cling on to God's promises. And we can't see Jesus face to face. We're 2,000 years too late. And yet we have these eyewitness accounts that tell us about the signs that Jesus did that we might believe. And so I wonder if our health is failing And it will do, I guess, for all of us at some point. And we're living with pain and uncertainty about the future. The fact that Jesus was able to heal a sick boy and bring him to life shows us that he has power to bring wholeness to a sick body. And that one day in the new creation, we will have bodies that are restored and well and healthy, a sign pointing us forward. For us who face the reality of death, the last and final great sign of Jesus being raised from the dead tells us that even though now we live in a world full of death, there will be a day when death is taken away and we are with the Lord Jesus again face to face. 
when life feels so full of drudgery and it's difficult, the fact that Jesus can turn water into wine reassures us that one day there will be a banquet and there will be feasting and joy and wine will flow and life will be abundant and fulfilled. It's a sign pointing us forward. We are not there yet, just as the people in Exodus 4 have not yet experienced uh, rescue and arrival into the promised land. So too, we are still experiencing the fullness of this world, but the signs help us to believe. God gives his people reasons to believe. Well, next, our second and final point, God uses people who are slow to believe. He uses people who are slow to believe. Uh, Our chapter began with Moses being concerned about the the people's unbelief, but I think the camera now kind of zooms around and it fixes on Moses and actually his unbelief. Now look at verse 10. Moses said to the Lord, O Lord, I have never been eloquent, neither in the past nor since you have spoken to your servant. I am slow of speech and tongue. Now, I remember the, uh, the, the first time I had to do a reading at a school assembly in front of hundreds of people. I remember practicing the reading again and again, and I was petrified. I was kind of sick in my stomach. I was nervous and shaky because it was a big thing to stand up in public and to read in that context. But just imagine for, for Moses having to go not to a school assembly, but to the very courts of Pharaoh, the superpower of the day, and announce to Pharaoh that God was going to take the people of Israel out into the promised land. I can understand why he was nervous. And yet I think his nerves betray a lack of trust in God. Verse 11, the Lord said to him, who gave man his mouth? Who makes him deaf or mute? Who gives him sight or makes him blind? Is it not I, the Lord? Now go, I will help you speak and will teach you what to say. A few weeks ago, I was trying to get a projector to work, trying to actually show some live rugby on a big screen, uh, very important work to be doing, um, and I just couldn't get the projector to work. I, you know, I had the manual in one hand, and I read through the various bits, and it didn't help me at all. I uh, looked online to the website, and I couldn't work out from the website how to get the projector to work to, to show what I was trying to show, and I, I sort of thought to myself, I wish I could pick up the phone and ring up Sony and actually speak to the very man who design this projector and get him to come to my house and show me how it works. It'd be brilliant, wouldn't it, to have the actual designer there with you, helping you make sense of it all. But isn't that what Moses has? When it comes to his speech, the creator God who made mouths and ears, he is with Moses and he is more than able to show Moses how it works and to bring success when it felt like failure. And now Moses is running out of excuses, and so he just puts it bluntly in verse 13. Oh Lord, please send someone else to do it. He just doesn't want to go. I think Moses just doesn't think that it's going to end in a rescue. I think he thinks it's going to end in failure again. And this time, verse 14, God's anger burns against Moses. 
after all that God has done to, to remind Moses, chapter three, that he is going to do these wonderful things, after he's given Moses these signs to uh, help him believe, even now Moses seems to doubt God. Later on in Exodus, uh, God is going to do extraordinary things through Moses. There's no doubt about how uh, significant he is as a character. But we need to be utterly clear at this early point in Moses' life that he is a flawed man. That he himself grapples and struggles to believe God's promises. He hasn't got it all sorted. In fact, Moses is not the hero of the story. And I think we see this most clearly when we get to the rather bizarre incident that happens on the way back to Egypt. Everything is going very well. Uh, Moses has left Egypt and God even uh, tells Moses what to expect as he returns to Egypt. God is clearly in charge of everything that is happening. It seems to be going to plan. And then we come to this bizarre moment at the travel lodge on the way to Egypt. And out of the blue we're told, verse 24 that the Lord was about to kill Moses. Where does that come from? Moses is God's man. He's God's rescuer. And yet we're told he's about to die. Only the actions of his wife, verse 25, save him. It seems that uh, Moses had forgotten to circumcise his, his child. And so verse 25, Zipporah and does what is needed and brings the evidence to Moses. And it's her actions, verse 26, that I think saves Moses' life. What's this all about? Why are we told these details now? At the very least, it reminds us that God doesn't need Moses to pull off the rescue. He could do it without Moses. But I think we're also we're being shown the state of Moses' heart, that he is a man who struggles to believe. Uh, we first encounter uh, circumcision back in Genesis 17. You can look at it later on if you want to, where God uh, lays out the kind of dynamics of his relationship with Israel, the covenant. God promises to keep his side of the covenant by uh, providing Abraham with many descendants and a, and a, and a land and to bless them. And in return, he says to Abraham, You need to circumcise your descendants, the boys. And yet it seems that Moses had not done this. It seems that in Exodus 4, Moses is playing loose and fast with God's covenant. And this isn't a perfect parallel. It doesn't quite work. But I think it conveys something of the shock of what's going on here. If I can put it this way, imagine a newlywed bride on her wedding day, after the marriage ceremony, after the exchanging of vows, later on during the banquet, wandering to the back of the room and and discovering her groom kissing another woman. I think that's the kind of shock of what's happening here in Exodus 4. Profound unfaithfulness on the part of Moses to keep his side of the covenant. And we can see why God is going to kill him. And it's only through the shedding of blood, did you notice, that God's anger is diverted. I think just an echo to what's going to happen later on in the Exodus when blood is shed that covers all of the people of Israel. 
But let's be clear in Exodus 4 that Moses is a flawed hero. He is a man who struggles to believe God. And it's so very clear that God is the one who is going to pull off the rescue. God is the one who has all the power, all the tools at his disposal. And yet God uses people who are slow to believe. People like Moses. Look at, again, how the story ends. Wonderfully, verse 29, Moses and Aaron uh, kind of return to, to Egypt. They meet the Israelites. Verse 30, Aaron speaks as the plan had been sort of put together. And indeed, verse 31, after the signs are performed, the people believe. And this is, is extraordinary. Remember back in Exodus 2 when Moses trying to lead the people. They, they, they pushed him away. They didn't believe. But now, kind of attempt two, the people do believe. What's the difference between failure and success? It's the Lord being with Moses. The Lord is the hero. He has the power. He is the one who can pull off a rescue and bring about belief in the people of God. Remember how the Apostle Paul put it in 2 Corinthians 12. God gave him a thorn in the flesh. Why? Well, we're told in verse 9. But God said to Paul, My grace is sufficient for you, for my power is made perfect in weakness. This is the pattern again and again in the scriptures that God uses weak people, people who struggle to believe and to act faithfully. He uses those people in order to demonstrate his power and to achieve his purposes in the world. It was true with Moses. It was true with the Apostle Paul. And as I finish, it is, I think, also true for us. Now, we need to be very careful. We shouldn't just dive in and assume that we're Moses, you know, and put ourselves in the Moses shoes. We're not given that particular special role to be God's rescuer for his people and to go to Egypt and to confront Pharaoh. That's a a unique one-off role for Moses. And yet, as we see how Moses struggled with his faith and how he wobbled to, to do God's will for his life, I think we get some really helpful insights into our hearts as we struggle to be faithful to God's will for us. For we too have a call to go and tell people about Jesus and to declare his rescue plans to a needy world. Uh, I guess in a sense this is tremendously encouraging. God uses people even like us to go out and tell people about God's rescue. In fact, there's no one else that God has chosen to do it. We are his plan to tell a needy world about Jesus. It's a great encouragement that we don't have to be perfect to be used by God. Of course, it's also tremendously challenging, too, because he does want us to speak. We are God's plan to reach a lost world. Uh, like Moses, uh, we can be brilliant at making excuses. Here's some that I have used uh, for myself recently. I don't know what to say. Uh, I've tried it before, but it didn't work when I've spoken to people about Jesus. I'm scared of how they might respond. Other people are better at it than I am. I'm just too busy. But Exodus 4 shows us that none of these excuses are valid. For God is the one with the power. He is the one that makes things happen, not us. It's not down to our strength. 
And weak as we are, feeble as we are, God can use us to bring rescue and belief to people. Uh, Ben mentioned the uh, Christianity Explored course beginning on Tuesday. Why not grab a flyer even now and uh, pass it on to a neighbor, someone at the school gates, a work colleague, someone we know, giving them an opportunity to uh, meet Jesus and work out what he did and what he claimed. Just as I finish, a few weeks ago, I was at a conference for Anglican church leaders. It was a hugely encouraging conference. There was, I guess, uh, 400 or so of us in the room. And it was great to hear stories about how uh, people were, were really working hard to further the gospel, planting churches, establishing churches, securing churches all across the country. Great stories of how God is working to build a people for himself, to, to rescue people out of slavery, to bring them to freedom. And yet it's also very discouraging because as we looked around the room, the 400 or so people there probably represented, what, 40,000 Christians around the country. Now, I know that you don't have to be Anglican to be a Christian, but it does give you an insight into how small things are, just a drop in the ocean when there are 60 million or so people in this country who are lost and enslaved and without hope. I look around uh, Sheffield. It's great to be here, isn't it, on a Sunday? Perhaps 800, 900 of us coming along, gathering together, extremely encouraging. And yet we are just a drop in a city of, what, 500,000 people where people don't know Jesus, people enslaved and lost. And it can be overwhelming at times when we see how big the need is, how big the job is. We go to our office and perhaps we are the only Christian in the workplace Uh, We are the only Christian at the school gate, and no one wants to know. And we can feel overwhelmed at the the job in front of us to bring people from unbelief to belief. Well, I think Exodus 4 reminds us that we have a great God who is all about the business of rescuing people out of slavery into freedom. We might be weak and feeble, but we have a great God who is strong and mighty and more than able to bring people from unbelief to belief. Let's pray. Father, we thank you so much for uh, these signs that you've given us that we might believe in all your promises for us. Please help us to be people who are utterly confident that you will fulfill your purposes and plans for us. Help us to fix our eyes on that moment when, when Christ returns and the brokenness and the pain of this fallen world is taken away once and for all. And Father, thank you that you are the God who uses weak people who, who wobble and struggle in their faith. And yet even in our weakness, you are able to do incredible things through us, using us to bring people from unbelief to belief. Please help us to trust you as we seek to be involved in that great work. In Jesus' name, amen.